So I want to thank you for trusting me in these last weeks to walk you through this subject matter. I received an email this week from a lady who visited last week, and she was communicating her surprise to come into the service and hear us talking about sex and intimacy when she came expecting a, a Lenten sermon. And so I, I wrote back to her and I, I said, I'm sorry if, if it made you uncomfortable. But I was thinking about that this week, about the whole Lenten emphasis and what Lent is about. And, and I think we need to remind ourselves that Lent is about preparation. It's the preparation of the believers. And traditionally, that's been done through penance and prayers and almsgiving, through um, self-denial and repentance. Preparation for what? Preparation to embrace Jesus. Preparation to embrace his life, his death, and his resurrection. So the question is this, then, then why, why do we have to do that through self-denial and through repentance? Simply because Jesus' death, his life, his resurrection really does run counter-cultural. Studies have shown by the, by the Kinsey Institute that by age 18, half the youth in America will have had sexual experiences and usually more, with more than one partner. We know that the divorce rate in the, the culture, the mainstream culture and the church culture is about the same, about 50%. We know that in the church today, if you would go around the church today in America as they're gathering together, that 50% of the men see, seated in those auditoriums in the church are dealing with pornography. 30% of the women are dealing with pornography. And if you go outside the church, up to 60% of the women are dealing with pornography. So sexuality and intimacy are a major, major issue in our lives right now. And as followers of Jesus, perhaps we should let this time of Lent remind us that if you're a follower of Jesus, it always involves self-denial. When I was growing up in my, my family, I learned about the birds and the bees around fifth grade. I, I still remember and thinking, what's he talking about? Because back in those days, we didn't have all the information out that is so readily available that we see now. And so that was just really interesting. And then through, I went through high school and learned more through the locker room and through people. And, and when I got into college and found the woman that I would marry and fell in love with her, we got engaged. And, and I married as a virgin. A couple weeks before the, the marriage, uh, some people counseled me and said, you probably, you know, it wouldn't, wouldn't hurt to go get a book on sexuality and marriage. And so I went looking for a book. And they're not easy to find back in 1976 like they are today. So I, I went to a, a mainstream bookstore and began to look. And maybe I should need to give you a little background about that. Uh, I was going to a Bible college. I was planning to be a pastor. I was living in Springfield, Missouri, where if you close your eyes and throw a dodgeball nine out of ten times, you'll hit an assembly of God or a Baptist churchgoer, because it's right in the middle of the, of the Bible Belt. And so to go do this, I was on a clandestine mission, so I went in and quickly tried to find the book I thought would be appropriate, pulled the book off the shelf, went straight to the, the, the register, hoping that she would just take it, slide it in the bag, ring it up, and I'd get out the door. I went for, for the counter. There was nobody there except the, cash, the, the cashier and 
the store was full of people, but nobody was there. I said, perfect time. I went there, and I, and I slid it on the counter, and she just took her time. And soon there were people piling up behind me. And instead of just taking the book and, and, and ringing it up and sliding it in, she lifted it up. And she looked again. And then she took the microphone and said, price check. And I don't remember the name of the book. Price check, sex for dummies. I turned and everybody's head just went zoom. And the look told me I was going to hell. Or Pentecostal purgatory, whichever. Now I gotta tell you the book was informational. But the book that we've been using to study these last four weeks together is transformational. It is important for us to stay focused on what we've been dealing with in these last four weeks and to begin to apply that. When I got married, I was a typical 21-year-old guy who Pam was thinking, oh, wedding, 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 and I was thinking, honeymoon, 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 honeymoon. And so I, I had no concept, really, of what Paul meant when he was writing to the church in Ephesus, and he said these words, Ephesians 5, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And when I read that, I, I kind of understood the first part, and I thought, what, he just threw that in about Jesus and the church, because what, what does that have to do with my sexuality? So I began to understand in the, in, the, in the months and years after that what this really is about. And see, I didn't know back then that the reason that God created the two to become one flesh was so that I would get to know him better. I didn't know that. I didn't know that he loves my body and he created it and he counts it as, as sacred and I should too. I didn't know that because I'm the temple of the Holy Spirit that when I joined with my wife and the two became one flesh, we were together as one body and then we joined as his body together. I didn't know that if I would take myself outside of the covenant of marriage and involve myself in a sexual relationship that in, the scripture says that I've actually amputated part of the body of Christ and connected it to something that is anti-God. I didn't know those things. I didn't know that that would disconnect me from the intimacy that he wanted to have with me. I didn't know that if I had chosen to be single, that if I would pursue God, that his intimacy would be so great that I would never feel that I had a loss because I was not married or sexually active. I didn't know that. I didn't know that there was this drive within me that really wanted to be fully known and accepted. I didn't know that what it really meant to be naked and not ashamed. I didn't know that, that there was always from the beginning this need to reconnect and not be rejected. I didn't know that God put that drive in me so that I would crave a oneness with him. All of that that I've just said, we covered these last three weeks in our podcast. And please, if you haven't, please download that and listen to that because it will give you a better sense of what I'm about to say this morning. It'll make a lot more sense. To live like I've just described really is countercultural. Following Jesus is a countercultural following. So a crowd came to Jesus and they said to him, Where do you get the authority to do what you're doing? Who said you could do this? 
And he said, I've got five specific sources that testify to the validity of who I am. He said, first of all, I testify to me because I am God. He said, secondly, John the Baptist, who you say is a prophet, has said who I am, and I am that one. Look at the miracles that I have done, and let them testify to you. Who of you around here are doing those miracles? I am who I said I am. Then Jesus said this, John 5, And the Father who sent me has himself testified concerning me. You have never heard his voice, nor seen his form, nor does his word dwell in you, for you do not believe the one he sent. You diligently study the scriptures because you think that by them you possess eternal life. These are the scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. The Father, he said, validated who I am. Because we know that three specific times the voice of God spoke from heaven and said, this is my son, I am so proud of him, listen to him. And then Jesus said, you think the scriptures will bring you life. They will not, but they will bring you to me and I will give you life. To trust that, to trust Jesus' words, to trust the validity of who he is, is to grow counterculture. So how do we do that? How do we live the way that Jesus said and live in this culture? Because Jesus said, you're going to be in this world, but not of this world. You're going to be of this culture, in this culture, but not of this culture. You're going to live in a culture that says, I want your kingdom to come and your will be done. And even my sexuality will be placed in this sacredness that will make you feel at home. But we live in a culture that does not want God's kingdom, does not want his will to be done, and does not want our sexuality to be sacred. So how do we live in a place like that? So now I'm going to take you in this study today to a place that some of you may not be, un- may not be comfortable. You may be uncomfortable where I'm going. But I'm going to ask you to just hang with me through this process until I'm finished. My fear this week has been that some of you will say, Ooh, you're too liberal. And some of you are going to say, you're too judgmental. And that the only person left when I'm done will be my wife because I'm paying for her lunch. So, so please, stay with me in this process because here's the deal. We would rather trust what is like us, not where Jesus would lead us. When you come to Jesus, he will always say to you, come follow me. And when he says, come follow me, you will always end up sometime at this point. And Mark records it in Mark 8. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his what? His cross and follow me. You see, you can't follow Jesus. Eventually, when you're following Jesus, you've got to carry a cross. You just can't follow him without the cross. It's part of the deal. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? Here's the process. When we begin to walk with Jesus and we begin to trust him, we will then begin letting go of those things that are not part of his design for our life. But that is not immediate. If we learn anything from the story of the prodigal son is that the father gives us time to trust his love. But I'm too much like the older brother. Because you show up and I'll say to you, what are you doing here? You smell like pigs. You're unclean. I'm the good son. 
I didn't do anything wrong. We will not eat together. We will not party together. If following Jesus is a countercultural following, then I want to tell you that loving Jesus is a cross-centered loving. Do you see who Jesus is hanging by when he's on the cross? Let me show you a picture. You remember. I appreciate the words of Richard Rohr who said this. Jesus hung in total solidarity with the pain of the world and the far too many lives on this planet that have been nasty, lonely, brutish, and short. After the cross, we know that God is not watching human pain, nor apparently always stopping human pain, as much as God is found hanging with us alongside all human pain. Jesus' ministry of healing and death, of solidarity with the crucified of history, forever tells us that God is found wherever the pain is. This leaves God on both sides of every war, in sympathy with both the pain of the perpetrator and the pain of the victim, with the excluded, the tortured, the abandoned, and the oppressed since the beginning of of time. The cross is our pattern of love. We had in our house for several years a lamp. Pam's dad gave us that lamp. Pam's dad found that lamp in the trash on a street one day. He took it and said, this looks good, and he rewired it. And we kept it. It was great. That's called redemption. Redemption is giving value to something that has been rejected. Jesus gave us redemption. Redemption is always hanging where it's needed. For Jesus taught us that. Luke says this in Luke 15, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear him. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Now let me stretch us a little bit. The community where Jesus lives invites all types of sinners. Is this the community where Jesus lives? You can answer, is it? Okay. Quite frankly, those who reject the kingdom lifestyle are welcome where Jesus eats. That's what he did. So what happens when someone enters into our community of faith who is not transformed yet into the kingdom lifestyle, especially in their sexuality. I have friends who come here and worship once in a while, and they are not married and they're sexually active. I have a gay friend who we talk about his relationship with Jesus. He loves Jesus. I have a friend who's transgender. And as I listened to her story, my heart broke for her because she said if it wasn't for Jesus, helping her discover who she truly is, she would have committed suicide. I love them. What do I do with them? You say, but the scripture says. I know, we're all experts on that. We're all experts of the law. An expert of the law came to Jesus and said, how can I get eternal life? And Jesus said, well, what does the law say? And he said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, do that and you'll live. He said, oh, oh, by the way, who's my neighbor? And Jesus said, well, there's this guy going from Jerusalem to Jericho, and on this very dangerous stretch of road, he was, he was robbed and beaten and left for dead. Two religious people came by on their way to worship, 
realizing that he may be dead, but he's all beaten and he's bloody. They can't touch him because if they touch him, they also will become unclean and they cannot worship. Therefore, they leave him to die. Jesus said, there comes one who the Jews declare is unclean already, a Samaritan, most hated person in, the, in all of Israel. He comes, finds the man, binds up his wounds, takes him to an inn, pays the inn to help him recover there. And Jesus said, Who, who's the neighbor? You know, that, that thing about love your neighbor as yourself, who, who's the neighbor? And the guy says, well, the Samaritan. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. So how do you love like that? I think the thing we've got to understand is that if we're going to love like that, we have to be willing to touch and be in community with the unclean. For that to happen, we've got to be empathetic. Love understands. The author of the Hebrews writes these words, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. That verse uses the word sympathy. It really, in the English word, is empathy, which translated means to have fellow feelings. I feel what you feel. Jesus had this incredible ability to keep labels off people. Jesus didn't say clean, dirty, gay, straight, Democrat, Republican. Jesus didn't do that. He saw us as individuals, and he said, I am feeling what you're feeling, so let me help heal you. Let's go to a place where you can be healed. He ate with them. Why? Because he was feeling their pain. If Jesus did that because he's a priest, what does that say to us in this place? In fact, let me just ask, how many of you are of the community of faith in Jesus? Raise your hand. Peter says this, you are a royal priesthood. That means you're a priest. If you're a priest in the image of Jesus, then you are just like Jesus. So what the author of Hebrews wrote should apply to us. And it should be able to be read this way to the community that surrounds us, those who are dirty, those who have not been transformed into the lifestyle of the kingdom. It should be able to be said about us as, a, as this goes out to those outside the community. For you people outside of the community have a priest. And he is not unable or she's not able to sympathize with your weakness because the people within the community of faith understand your pain because they have not been without sin. They have sinned. They know that pain. They've been tempted in every way just as you are. So go ahead and approach the throne of grace with confidence, with confidence, because those folks will receive you with mercy and you will find grace from them in your time of need. We've got to be able to say, I am feeling your pain. Let me take you someplace where you can be healed. You spend some time with people who have same-sex attraction, and I'm going to tell you, you're going to find that they didn't choose it. 
You say, well, they were probably born with it, or maybe they weren't born with it. I don't know that stuff. I just know this, that you talk to them and they say, I didn't choose this pain. I didn't choose this confusion. I didn't choose this. And for many of them, they've gone through incredible abuse. And sometimes from the hands of those who are to love them. If we are, to be, if we are made to be fully known and accepted, shouldn't the church be the place that provides the space so people can have time to trust Jesus and be transformed? So that together we can recognize that our sexuality is not our identity and by itself cannot really bring us to the place that we're naked and not ashamed. We've got to feel that pain. And then we've got to welcome. There needs to be a place in life where people can go where they're not condemned, yet we are not forced to condone. They can exist together. So I've been studying the passages dealing with, throughout the Scripture, every passage dealing with homosexuality. And here's my conclusion. And if you want to spend more time with me, I can take you through that. Same-sex attraction is not a sin. Acting on that attraction is. It's not accepted by God. Romans 1 makes it very clear that, that the people before us have so messed up this world by their sin, and we're part of it too, that we have confused our sexuality. We have messed it up, and all of us deal with it. If you're dealing with pornography this morning, it's as a result of that mix-up. If you're dealing with same-sex attraction, it's because of that mix-up. And we cannot stand here and point fingers and say, what's wrong with those people? Because here's what Paul says in Romans 2. Now we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. Yes, that's right. And we condemn them. And then Paul says this. So when you, a mere man, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you will escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his tolerance, and his patience? not realizing that God's kindness leads you towards repentance. I was worshiping up here today and just got into the song and the worship team just took us right there and I'm just thinking, God, thank you because I have so messed up and yet you have forgiven me and, I, and I'm, just, I'm just so relieved. There are things that I've done that I was so afraid that would go public as I was growing up and, and in life and I thought, oh, if somebody knew I'm just dead and God in his kindness took care of me. Who here is perfect and not dealing with any sin in your life at this moment? You say, but this is, this is sexual sin he's talking about. I am having trouble finding anywhere. I, I know that sexual sin has greater consequence on the physical body, but I can't find anywhere where God has that at the top of the list of sins. He said, okay, we're going to first start with sexual sin, then we're going to go to murder, and then we're going to go to robbery, and then down in here we're going to get speeding on Peach Street, and then down here not putting the toilet lid back down. And ladies say, amen. <laughs> Without Jesus, we're all in the crosshairs of God's judgment. But God's kindness is leading us to forgiveness and life change. So here's what I know about what God does. He cleanses us. First Corinthians, Paul writes these words and the sixth chapter, the ninth verse. Don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. 
Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols or commit adultery or are male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or, or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheat people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. And some of you were once like that. But you were what? Cleansed. You were made holy. You were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. There's this thing about Jesus when we come into him, and, and it's not just cut and dried. It's, 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 we, we, try to, we try to say, okay, here's where it started, here's where it ends, here's this, 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 this. All I know is you walk into Jesus' life, and, and you say, I want to be part of you. He says, come on, my blood cleansed you so that you can be here. And there's this positional holiness that gets us in the door. I don't know how he does that, but he does. But yet I'm not perfect. I still have issues. I still gossip at times. I, I, I still want to cheat on my taxes. I still want to cheat on my taxes. <laughs> There's just this stuff in us that's still there, yet he's still in the process of cleansing us. And here's what happens. As you get to know him better, he says, hey, Reisner, give me your time. And I go, okay, I can, I can trust you now with my time. Here's my time. Hey, Reisner, give me your anger. Okay, I, I, I can trust you with my anger. Here, here's my anger. Hey, Reisner, give me control. Okay, I, I'll give you control. And as we trust him, we are able to release those things. And to trust him takes time. We know that the good news is that when Jesus returns for us, we will see him as he is and immediately be totally the way we're supposed to be. I've been thinking this week about the fact that coming up in June, I'll have been married to Pam 37 years. Was I right? Okay, good. I deeply, deeply love her. In fact, the last decade, I feel like I've just loved her more than ever. And, and I'm so thankful for 37 years of expressions of love and physical connections of love and all of the stuff that God's provided. And I thought, what would happen if, if Sonny, a prophet of God, a true prophet of God, came to me and said, you know, God's word says that your relationship with Pam and the love you have for her is invalid. You can't love her anymore that way. It would kill me. And the only way that I would be able to release that is to be able to say, but I trust Jesus, and there's something better beyond. When our son Dustin was born in about six months, he got a, a really severe infection and was in the hospital, and we thought he was going to die because his fever just would not come down. And I remember us standing there by him and finally came to the place that we prayed, Jesus, if you want to take him, you can take him. Now, when he got in high school, I prayed that a lot. Jesus, if you want to take him, you can take him. Feel free. But at that moment, the only way we could do that is understanding that if we let him go, and Jesus did that, that there was hope that there was something still better beyond. So I listened this week to a lady who lived a lesbian lifestyle. She came to a church with her partner to see if she could create an uproar in the church, to see if those people would hate her. And she said, the most amazing thing is we came in and started listening to Jesus, and nobody even stared at us as we, as we sat there and held hands. Nobody, looked, nobody said anything to us. And she said, as I began to listen to who Jesus is, I began to ask about him, and I began to understand him more. And, and, and the time came that Jesus said to me, as is her talking, he said to me, Give me your time. 
They said, oh, yeah, I can trust you with my time here. Give me your job. Okay, I, I can trust you. I know you well enough now that I can trust you. Here's, here's, here's my job. She said that he kept asking for things, and then one day he said, give me your body. She said, okay, I, I can trust you with my body. And then he said, give me your sexuality. And she said, okay, I think I can do that. I can trust you with my sexuality. She still has attraction. But she's been away from that relationship now for five years because she understood what it was to trust Jesus and that there's hope beyond what she had to release. All of us are on a journey of God peeling back layers upon layers of stuff that do not belong in his perfect design. That we've got to come to the place that we trust him with that and we, and we have a hope that goes beyond what we think we lost. Take up your cross and follow me. See, Jesus doesn't want to take your love away. In fact, he gives you a spirit that is love. Galatians 5.22 says, but the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives, and it starts out with that word love. From there comes joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, but it starts with love. Jesus doesn't want to ruin your life. In fact, he made this statement, John 10.10, I have come that you might have life and have, have it to the fullest. So what I say to you is this, as a community of faith, and whatever you are, wherever your sexuality is or whatever you're dealing with, can we have honest dialogue about what Jesus wants and walk toward hope? Transformation doesn't happen instantly. You just can't, you can't stick it in a microwave and say, there, transformed. And during that process, Jesus was a friend of those who didn't yet be, yet, weren't yet transformed into that kingdom lifestyle, but he still had them and he still ate with them because he didn't condemn but he didn't condone. See, the thing you're dealing with may not be sexual sin. It may be your anger. It may be your selfishness. It, it may be your money. It may be your materialism. I simply say, can we journey together and be neighbors? So when we gather to worship, you may end up being by, by somebody that, that you're not comfortable with. You may just say, they, they look strange, they're acting strange, I'm just not comfortable with them. Well, probably the bottom line is that they're probably not comfortable with you. And especially if somebody comes in here that, that you're having trouble with their, their sexuality, just give me a moment here. Just Could it be they're in here wanting to see if you're going to hold up a placard that says God hates you? Because I'll tell you right now, Jesus ate with people who had a different sexuality than you're used to. It was prevalent in his time. Chances are they're here trying to begin to discover if they can begin, maybe not fully known, but partly known, and somebody will accept them. That they are on this journey and they need space to find how to follow Jesus, and aren't we all? So, this is what we'll always believe here. We will always believe for this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and shall cleave to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And what God has put together, let no man separate. We'll believe that. But we'll also believe this that we're on a journey about following Jesus. 
And can we just be transformed together and eat together in hope? So I end this in a very unusual way this morning. In just a moment, we're going to show you a video. At the end of the video, a question is going to come up on the screen, and I want you to ask Jesus that question. I want you to sit and contemplate it for a few moments. We'll have music playing to contemplate and, and see as you ask that question if God gives you a response or a direction for a response. And when you're done contemplating, you're welcome to go, but do it in reverence for the people that are still contemplating around you because I think Jesus is going to be speaking to us. And so now may God grant you courage and mercy. Let's see the video, ask the question, then you're welcome to go. I can tell you that at age 63, uh, I'm the happiest and uh, that I have ever been in my life. It's funny, we were having coffee and um, I have about three friends that I'm very close to that are all named Joe. And so after a couple coffee times, I was kind of relaying the story back to my family. Hey, I met with Joe and they're like, Joe who? And so it became like the adjective of how to describe him. So I'm like, no, 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 not that Joe, not Joe Smith or, or Joe Ritchie, um, it, it's gay Joe. And then I started kind of feeling bad that I was calling him that. So when, um, when we caught up, I said, hey, I just need to tell you, I've been a calling you gay Joe. And he's like, well, you know, I'm gay and my name's Joe. So that's me. One of the questions I always ask, because I'm sort of a, a stirrer-upper and, and curious as to how, does, how did he feel about being in a church that was open and affirming. And to my surprise, Jason said, I love it. I think it's great. I want every church, I want the church that I'm part of to be open with accepting arms to say, hey, listen, I love you for who you are, not where you are, because unless we give them an opportunity to be in proximity to the message of hope, they'll never understand the, the liberating power of that message. He said to me, would you like to have coffee? I said, sure, why not? So we had coffee that first time, we spent a lot of time talking, and we realized that uh, we agree about more than we disagree on. And I was impressed with his heart and his feelings for people and how he dealt with people. Every agreement became a building block to the friendship. A strong foundation was made, um, but it gave me an opportunity to explain to him uh, the scriptures. One of the things I realized early on in our dialogue was that he was walking a very, very fine line with his own congregation and I was concerned about him because I knew he has a lovely wife and two beautiful children, and I know how ugly people can be. So I uh, cautioned him, and I said to, to him, uh, have you any idea what this is going to mean to you in terms of um, your congregation and the conservative uh, folks that are in your congregation? Shortly after 
um, the relationship with Joe begin to uh, mature and to take root. Um, there were certain events in our city that we had committed to being part of as an outreach. Um, one of them was passing out water bottles at the, at the Gay Pride Parade. Well, when these uh, people that um, are, in my opinion, just hate-filled, found out that I was there and that we had representation there as an outreach, they showed up at our church in full force and began to picket. Well, when I hear the word Christian, I used to cringe a little bit because I would think these folks are, uh, for lack of a better term, Bible thumpers, right-wingers, do not like gay people, won't allow them in their churches, all these kinds of things. I've seen it, just being around him. I've been uh, yelled at and I've been judged because I was walking with him. And people had no idea that I was a pastor at a church. Um, so I think we have some work to do, and I think we can work at um, trying to undo some of those stereotypes by practicing empathy. I think empathy is understanding that other people are in a different plight, in a different journey, and just for a moment I seek to feel what you feel. You know, let's look at people as individuals and not as a group, and try to be as inclusive as you can. And every, everyone needs to be treated with dignity and respect, even though you may not believe in their lifestyle or what they believe in, I believe there's more of a connection there than there is a disconnection. And I think that's gonna help us all. Jesus loves Joe because the scripture says that while we were still sinning, God demonstrated his love for us, that he sent Christ to die for us. And um, I love that because it says, while I was still messed up, while I was still face down in the gutter of my own circumstance and situation, Jesus was willing to stretch out his arms and, and die for me. And um, I love the fact that that's inclusive of all people for whoever calls on the name of God. Here is the question to ask God. How do you want me to love my neighbor?